six of the top eight financial institutions. I, I was facilitating a, a workshop with them. And we were talking about what technology do you wish you had that you don't have today that's prohibiting you guys from being super cost efficient and better for your borrowers. And I thought they were going to talk about origination, but six of the eight all said the same thing. Our servicing platform is written on 50-year-old code base, and servicing is like the spine of our customer retention cross-sell strategy. We just cannot make the system work, and we don't know what to do. And I said, well, clearly you're not getting the response you need from the provider. What if you went to the marketplace and did a crowdsource and said, I've got $200 billion a year of origination for anybody who wants it if they'll build me a system? Folks, we are back for another episode of the Housing News Podcast. I am Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media and your host for the Housing News Podcast. Today, we are here to talk about technology, innovation, building global workforces, the topics that matter to mortgage banking executives as they seek to build more elastic and efficient mortgage banking operations. Our guest for today is Henry Santos. Henry currently serves as founder and partner of OPX America, but I've gotten to know Henry over the years through his time at Sprout, Infosys, and Movement Mortgage as Chief Information Officer. Henry brings an astounding amount of knowledge and experience to this conversation, and I'm so excited for you to listen and learn from some of the experiences that Henry has developed in his career in the mortgage and technology ecosystem. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Henry Santos. So Henry, we're not in the Plano office, but what, what 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 story prompted you to ask me about the Housing Wire HQ in Plano? Which honestly, that was like a decade ago. We haven't been in Plano in a long, a long while, but I'm curious to ask, what, what prompted that question? Well, because uh, I was there for a workshop, an all-day workshop, and the weather started getting incrementally worse as the day wore on. I'm a New York City kid, so we get like snow and rain, but not cyclones and tornadoes. And I could see off in the distance because the land is so flat, this this thing accumulating and getting bigger and spinning closer and closer. And it was getting orange outside. And I looked around everybody and said, guys, are you not petrified? Because I'm thinking we need to run for cover right now. And they're like, oh, it, it happens all the time. It just, the sirens will tell us when it's a problem. So Henry, I moved here in 2016, moved to Dallas in 2016 and we bought Housing Wire and we weren't in the Plano office then, we were in, in Las Colinas, but the weather like was crazy. Like I remember I have multiple videos on my phone still of like hailstorms, like you would, wouldn't believe in that weird orange sky that Texas gets. I absolutely love Texas. Don't get me wrong, but the weather here I can, I can see would be very surprising for a New York city kid. And nobody told me the hottest time of the day is 9 p.m. <laughs> yes, it just it just keeps climbing through the day. But we are recording this in, in fall. So uh, we are getting that beautiful long fall and long spring that we appreciate so much here in Texas. That Hopefully the days of 100 plus are behind us for, for 2023 at least. Henry, thank you so much for joining us today for an episode of the Housing News Podcast. I was digging back through Housing Wire Archives without even knowing your history of visiting the office up in Plano. And your roots in the industry go so deep. I want to learn more about the days of Zenta that many of our, our esteemed or uh, more, what would we call it, more tenured housing professionals might, might remember the days of Zenta than the deal that led to Accenture. Tell us about that origin story in the digital mortgage and housing tech ecosystem. I, I want to hear more about those early days for you. 
So my background is actually in manufacturing, manufacturing technology, factory construction. We built factories all over the world and relocated manufacturers to all parts, Far East, Mexico. So very much a technology and process orientation. I got recruited to Bank of America in 2002 to build a loan origination system. And their theory or their thesis was we want to build it like a manufacturer would build an assembly line. So it's so over, for over 20 years, we've been using this term mortgage manufacturing. It's nothing new, even though people might like to pretend it is sometimes. They have no idea what it means, but they love the word. It, mean, it means efficiency, right? Like lower cost origination. I mean, that's the story I've been sold. And then, then that would make us the only industrial business in the world that's lost productivity in the last 20 years. But yeah, I think the con- you get the concept, right? So I, um, so Bank of America, when they purchased Countrywide, had built that LOS, but it was because of the technology Countrywide was on at the time, it was not able to be integrated on the new technology platform. And they had to actually integrate these two things. So they put that technology on the shelf, interestingly. But what it did for me is it had gotten me a deep, deep purview into how a loan actually goes from point to point. And I joined a company called Zenta in order to create uh, an operational outsourcing capability for both commercial and residential mortgages. And at the time that I joined them, they were 100% offshore. So the only value play for customers was take it all offshore. And, and when I got there, I said, you know, it's probably not the best idea. You probably need a global operation, just like every other manufacturing company in the world. You can do some things in India. You can do some things in Central America, but you need to be able to do some things here. So we built more of a global fulfillment model that would chase the clock. And uh, we had tremendous success. Um, we hit it really hard during the crisis, which led us heavily into the default space for lo- loss mitigation, which very much is like an origination process for mods. And then when the HARP program came out, the whole world exploded. Nobody had capacity, and we built a massive Harp operation. At one point, we had over 5,000 employees. We were personally, you know, our, our organization was closing over 4,000 loans per month. So it made us a pretty big lender in some respects. So how did it, so going through the, the great financial crisis and into this, this massive REO and default wave, how did that part of the, uh, our, our cyclical industry and that cycle, how did it impact technology innovation? So what was happening kind of pre-crisis that got, that got shelved or backburned or accelerated during the GFC? So, uh, what, one of the things they learned, I think was that existing servicing systems were built on legacy technologies that absolutely were ill-equipped to allow for automation and decision-making access to data, the ability to apply data rules. So if you think about during that whole loss mitigation phase, say 08 to 12, let's call it that four-year window, there was a ton of technology contracts written to try to figure out a way. I got to get to this data and I have to apply these investor rules to run this waterfall to see what treatment I need to give this consumer. And now according to national servicing standards, I have to do it in certain timeframes and document that I've in fact followed the rules. None of the systems were built for that. So there was a whole cottage industry that was built up around PEGA, workflow solutions, uh, automated decision waterfall engines that I think was good for the industry because it was sort of a precursor to AI, woefully inadequate, but a precursor to AI. And I think that's what opened a lot of folks' eyes to, uh, I know IBM actually, when they were uh, 
providing servicing for Fannie Mae use their origination platform and actually to be able to do the loss mitigation waterfall. So I think the one thing that was learned really quickly was a couple of things. One, <laughs> consumers don't really know their financials. I think that was really clear. So source data is going to be way better than asking consumers to fill out any kind of documentation. That was a lesson learned. The next lesson learned was how do we how do we read documents more efficiently? Because during the loss mitigation phase, it was a very document-dependent justification for a treatment. And you had massive files of invoices and income statements and payoffs. And, you know, it, it was quite cumbersome. And I think that was kind of the genesis of saying we have to be able to scan and read these documents with intelligence. The, the other lesson was that was learned during that time was uh, – the industry technology just does not flex. So when we're in the, in the real craze of that heart boom, say, say 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, um, we had customers just begging us to add bodies, add bodies, add bodies to get to in order to process these loans. And it didn't scale. We ran hundreds and thousands of people at a time. We had to train them on these systems and it was amazingly inefficient. I think for if you look at where we are today, I think the message is, uh, we need to prepare for another onslaught of volume when we get through this sticky phase. And the, qu- the major question is going to be, how, are we, how is everyone in the industry who's now downsized, how are they going to ramp? Because most folks have downsized to about 60% of their capacity from two years ago. May not come back to where it was, but it's going to go 25% when rates drop. And, and what's their strategy going to be? So what are you hearing right now? Like, what is that strategy going to be? Because we've, I mean, I've, I think our housing news audience is probably sick of me talking about elastic uh, systems to help lenders um, better respond to changes in volume. But like, what, what is the strategy that you see people putting in place today to actually deliver a more elastic future that doesn't have us ramping up headcount by hundreds of thousands? I think for the first time, I'm actually hearing C-suite decision makers say, out loud, I don't ever want to hire back to the levels that I had in 2019 and 2020. I want to variableize my capacity. I want to run at about 40% of what I need. And then either through a combination of outsourcing or through business process automation, figure out how to create that capacity. When we talked about that before, it was a nice thing to talk about, but it wasn't really a priority because there was so much volume. There was so much money being made. And, you know, somehow people were finding capacity. But for the first time, I'm actually hearing people say, for example, I'm going to move to a global workforce solution. I believe in it. I want to I want to install it now, plant the seed and I'm going to use it to scale. I may only hire, you know, 10 or 15 people and scale another 100 or 200 with a global outsourcing partner. That's the first one. The, the second one is really looking at how to automate the underwriting decision and the surveillance of the file through the condition surveillance in the pre-close phase. I think we're finally starting to get people to take that super seriously and to trust in machine intelligence to do that job. So do you see, so I I understand like starting to put a, a flag in the ground on building a global workforce. And the, the theory on that is hire, like you just said, hire 15, 20, 50 people and be ready to scale that. Um, when the volume demands, do you see people starting to like put that flag in the ground and start to build that muscle today? We are starting to see it as a business, but I think the problem is over the past decade and a half, outsourcing has become a very, it's a dirty word. 
And I, and I think maybe justifiably so. When the getting was good and there was so much demand, there were a lot of technology companies that said we ought to be in the underwriting or the fulfillment business. And so they took technology interns and recent college grads, plopped them in a room, taught them how to log on to an LOS, didn't give them any mortgage training, and just started taking volume. And it wasn't done very well. And if you talk to lenders, they would say, you know, it just didn't work. They don't know mortgage. They don't know our culture. They don't know the culture of mortgage. I had to teach them everything. I had to keep an eye on them. So I, I just think outsourcing wasn't done really well before. And then I think also there was this idea that if I'm getting 100 loans, you make the math easy, I'll give you 50 and I'll keep 50. And then we'll have like a champion challenger and you take my 50, right? But that's not really the right way. No industry in the world that considers themselves truly a global industry manufactures everything in different locations. So take the auto industry. You have parts manufactured in Brussels, Germany, Italy, China. They're assembled in Mexico and then final assembled in the U.S. and delivered to the customer. That is truly a global enterprise resource planning kind of model. Not, hey, let's do 50 cars in China and 50 cars in Detroit and see how it goes. And we're talking about what could be qualified as a, a digital financial asset. We don't need ships to bring our parts around the world. We can use cloud infrastructure. So why has it been more challenging for the mortgage industry to develop this kind of global workforce mentality while other manufacturing sectors, arguably more complex sectors, have figured out how to operate globally? I'm going to give you a very on- my honest response, right? I think there's, I think there's three things. I think number one is that the our industry is overly sensitive to loan officer preferences. I hate to say it, but it, you know, what does the loan officer like? Who do they want to communicate with? How do they want to? Please don't make them upset. They might go away. When you have loan officers that are free agents and that's your sales force, you wind up making a lot of accommodations that aren't grounded in fundamental industrial engineering or science or math or accounting. It's just don't piss them off, excuse my French, and make sure they're happy. Well, what makes them happy is they want to talk to Betty in Des Moines and only Betty. And if you give me anybody but Betty touching my loans, it doesn't work. Well, what business in the world scales like that? So Henry, earlier you mentioned that like outsourcing can be seen as a dirty word. Is is that why? Is it loan officer preference why you'd put outsourcing in kind of the the tough to talk about topic? Or are there other reasons why outsourcing has been sensitive in, in our industry and others? I think that's part of it, right? And and some of it honestly is cultural sensitivity. I think uh, generally speaking in the United States, we are behind the rest of the world when it comes to interacting on a day-to-day basis with other languages and other cultures. And that native inherent bias really clouds people's judgment of performance. And I tell people all the time, I have had underwriters on my offshore team make the same judgment. I'm not going to say mistake, a judgment call on an overlay that a U.S. underwriter would make, but there, there is a cultural sensitivity there, right? For obvious reasons. And so one is worse than the other. But I think the more important reason than that, besides the cultural thing is, I just don't think, generally speaking, mortgage companies really understand lean Sigma manufacturing. And so you've got mortgage bankers trying to do two things that I think makes it hard for outsourcing to, and I think productivity to improve. Let's talk about the outsourcing piece. Your process has to be um, 
you, you have to disintegrate your process at the atomic level into what, who does what, when, where, and why. And that can be very complex. You have to understand that. You have to, you have to build the capability to do that. And I don't think a lot of mortgage companies understand anything but processor, underwriter, closer. So when you talk about a global fulfillment process, you might be talking about 20 subatomic processes that now need to be performed at certain times in order to make the whole process much more leaner, much more efficient, much more straight through. The, the second issue is if you're in some legacy technologies, they're just not built to be disaggregated. There's just not a good way to grab data at a milestone or a marker and move it to a performance resource and then take the results of that, the digital results of that performance resource output and put it back into the system. You know, they have these things called personas and milestones and all these things that aren't, are very difficult to break apart. And so that doesn't lend itself to kind of this maquiladora manufacturing process. And that's why I think one of the things we're starting to see some pickup around, we're working closely with SAP right now in the market around something called ERP for mortgage. Uh, and I think that's going to be a very interesting development over the next year. So Henry, if we look, I asked you to rewind earlier 20 years to your Accenture and Zenta days. We'll go a little bit more recent. You have experience in this market on the lender side with organizations like, like Movement and Sprout, and you have experience on the, the consultant and, and partner side with I, IBM, OPX Today, and uh, Infosys as well, right? Yeah. So when you talk about the industry not understanding uh, uh, lean practices and, and Six Sigma, like when you're on the lender side, were you having those, those conversations? And I guess I don't want to pinpoint it to the organizations you've been with, but like, what's the manufacturing conversation on the lender side? And then let's tie that through with what's the manufacturing conversation from like the, the OPX angle, like how are you helping lenders get there and the way they think about the businesses? So, so it's interesting, you know, when, when you, first of all, not all lenders are the same, right? You probably have, if you break lenders into segments, you might have like these 10 personalities. That, that would actually be a really fun article for our newsroom. The personalities of the top 10 mortgage lenders, because I, I think they all distinctly have one. <laughs> they really do. And, you know, it, it, and I've been in all the shops. And so, you know, banks tend to have large project management staffs populated by lots of professionals who do have Lean Sigma certifications, but they tend to be drawn at, from outside of industry. And so they come into industry and there's this tension between, you know, the, the industry people, experts and the outside experts. And, you know, anybody who's been in a large bank knows it's really hard to get change done. Right. And they're, and they're, and they're, you know, it takes years sometimes to change processes for a variety of reasons. If you go all the way downstream to the, you know, 500 unit a month IMB, they don't have any of those resources on their staff. They've got loan officers and fulfillment people and nothing in between in terms of like a project management orientation to actually, they don't even, a lot of them don't even know what their process is. They haven't documented anything in 10 years. There's no standard operating procedures. There's no process flow diagrams. There's nothing. They're just getting work done every day. So those are probably the the two extremes, right? And they don't have the cash to hire McKinsey to tell them to come in, come in and tell them how to do it. Yeah. And they don't have McKinsey to come in. And, and that's the other thing about our industry. So, I mean, if there's a theme that I'd love to, <laughs> that I, I'm trying like crazy to get out there is that, you know, the, the industry doesn't need more consultants. I can tell you that. Uh, those those um, analyses tend to be very esoteric. I think uh, we have a saying that, uh, 
uh, success comes from the mud. You got to go subterranean when you if you really want to tease out efficiency in this mortgage process, given how many each loan is a snowflake and how, how many data elements there are, how many touch points there are. If you really want to fix it and you really want to understand it, you have to go massively subterranean. And, um, you know, over the last three years, nobody's had the time to do that. I've installed LOS systems before. And, you know, there's a number of, there's a number of problems. One, the LOS systems themselves don't have an out-of-the-box point of view. So when you would install an LOS today, which is a good time to really get into what's my manufacturing process, how do I want to do this, it's always surprising to me when I've been a consultant working with a loan origination platform that they don't come out of the box with a point of view. This is the best way to manufacture a loan, in our opinion. We've put time and attention on it. What they do is they come out and they say, here's a platform. It's configurable. It can do anything you want. What do you want it to do? You have to tell us. Well, what I hear from the lenders is, when's the last time a lender decomposed ICE or Black Knight? They don't know what the black box is doing. So now you're going to tell me, it can do anything I want it to do, but you just have to tell me. That's like saying, I have a new Tesla in your driveway. It can do anything you want it to do. You just have to tell the transmission how you want it to operate and when you want it to break. Really? So, so I think that's that's one of the that, that's one of the tensions is that uh, I think the time has come for a really legitimate subterranean deep in the weeds conversation. And I think instead of one mortgage company trying to do it all by themselves and thinking they're come up with a secret sauce. I don't know why for the life of me, but I think the time is now for a consortia to come together. And maybe they're like segments, right? So maybe there's a consortia for credit unions, there's a consortia for IMBs, there's a consortia for mega banks, but actually take the time to think through every single step in the user experience. And I don't just mean the customer, the borrower, I mean the, the people in the back office. What do they do every day and how do they do it and what would make it more efficient? And take the time to really tease that out and then write code to that and create interfaces for that. That hasn't really been done in a long, long time. I feel like you're like describing what should start as a work group inside of our trade organization, but then flows through into a product org. So, so what do you exact go, go deeper on the consortia idea? How does, how does this happen? And it, and if, if I, maybe I didn't not picking up on what you're putting down here, but is this what you're pursuing with OPX? It is one of the things we're attempting to do is to bring people together and say, look, I, I, I know you think differently, but a residential conforming mortgage loan is a commodity. I hate to tell you this, but you're really not doing anything scientific here. It's all going to the same investor for the most part. Now, non-QM and stuff we can talk about, but the other stuff, it's going to one place. And those rules and guidelines are, are, are pretty binary. So why can I go into 10 lenders and document 10 almost diametrically opposed processing, underwriting, and closing processes. Why are you all doing it so differently? Why is there not standardization in inputs? Why are you all using different credit agencies, source data agencies? It's just amazing how fractured our industry is. And so one of the things I've been lobbying for, I'm lobbying right now, is to try to get a group of interested parties together to say, we're gonna make one car it's going to be a black Ford. It's going to it's going to operate like this, and it's going to be the lowest cost to produce solution and the you know the best straight th throughput model. And we're all going to live with it. You know, my ex first experience with this was actually in 2016. I had um, I, sh I won't name the names, but six of the top eight financial institutions 
were, I, I was facilitating a, a workshop with them. And we were talking about what technology do you wish you had that you don't have today that's prohibiting you guys from being super cost efficient and better for your borrowers. And I thought they were going to talk about origination, actually, to be honest with you. But six of the eight all said the same thing. Our servicing platform is written on 50-year-old code base. And servicing is like the spine of our customer retention cross-sell strategy. And we, we just cannot make the system work for our digital customer interface, for our analytics, for our resale algorithms. And we don't know what to do. And I said, well, uh, clearly you're not getting the response you need from the provider. What if you went to the marketplace and did a crowdsource and said, I've got something like $200 billion a year of origination for anybody who wants it if they'll build me a system. And, and so what we did with that consortium is we actually wrote the specs as a team. It was not easy. These are big companies. They're C-suites. We actually wrote a preliminary functional set of requirements and put it out. And we had 20 of the top you know, Oracle's, IBM's, SAP's of the world all respond. And we actually brought them all to Chicago for three days and did like a shark tank and had each organization pitch how they would build it, what technology stack they would build it on, how long it would take, what would be the primary features, and they got graded and scored and then ultimately down-selected to, to a vital few. So I know that, like the depository institutions as slow as they can be and as old as the tech can be, they have uh, a DNA of collaboration because they're counterparties in capital markets and other parts of the financial service ecosystem. However, my vantage point of the independent mortgage bank world has not been quite as collaborative. And as much as we talk about a abundance mindset and growing, growing the pie, um, bringing a consortium of mortgage bankers together, it has got to be kind of like just filled with like uh, skepticism of like, why am I helping my competition improve their, their tech stack? Is that not the, like the approach that you're seeing mortgage bankers come to the table with when you talk about a consortium approach? It, it was a year ago for sure. Right. Okay. Because I think when there was an, ab- when there's an abundance of revenue, everybody wanted to be guaranteed rate in Lone Depot. They thought there was some cachet. And if you're going to try to sell your company, that's probably a good thing. But then I think what's starting to materialize when people are honest about it is uh, all the POSs that came out with so much hype, right? Um, Again, I'm not here to name names, but there was this, all, all of this new fintech stuff, it has not moved the needle. Productivity is on a decline, and it's been on a steady decline. And I think what they're finally starting to realize is the issue is not a shiny POS or one tiny little secret sauce thing I have for automated appraisals. The issue is really the core platform and what my net operating cost is to close a loan. And if I could get that down, so to your point, it's not interesting to people until you tell them, I can get your total cost of ownership to 15 basis points. Now that starts to get intriguing. Yeah. No, I sign up to work with my competitors. If you tell me I'm going to significantly change my, my cost structure. So I'm, I'm, I'm signing up 15 basis point production. Um, what are the lenders expecting from this consortium and what is the timeline to that? Like delivered technology look like? So, um, I, I think their expectations right now, to be honest with you, they're still in the, I'll believe it when I see it mode. Right. So, I mean, what, where we are right now is we're kind of the fine. mode I'm in too. <laughs> yeah. 
finalizing the, the, the list. And I think, but the difference is, I think we've got a window through June of next year that if it's not out and in market, we've missed it. So what, by that, you're saying if we start to see a wrap, if we see a change in the marketplace, like we start to see more interest rates, dare I say, cooperate, then lenders have a propensity to get distracted with volume and move on to the next, the next thing. Yeah. And I think there's three forces going on. One, you have a, you have a big merger going on. And I think the anticipation is on the heels of that merger are going to be much more leveraged terms and conditions, uh, longer term deals, less pricing flexibility, higher price. That's the only when thing. When you talk about merger, you're talking about ICE and the servicing side of Black Knight? Yeah. There's there's only one drone that's going to be, I think you pay more for, and lock in for longer periods of time in order to pay for the deal. That's what lenders are saying. That's what lenders are concerned about. And lenders who are not on Encompass today, but are Black Knight servicing entities, feel like part of the negotiation is going to be to push them towards Encompass. And I think people are using, looking for something else. So that merger is creating a unique opportunity, I think. And then I think there are some um, new entrants into the marketplace that actually have platform as a service capability that can do this in months, not years, because the core platform, I'll use SAP as an example. The core platform is built in an object-oriented way that you can stand up a workflow in 90 days. And it's a microservices model. So uh, everything today that's sort of monolithically hard-coded took years to build. But when you break down something like, I want to upload an URL, I want to order fees, I want to order an appraisal, those are microservice calls that go from database to endpoint. And those can be built overnight in some in some respects. My tech buddies will laugh when I say that. But that that's the new world we live in. And so if you have a, a core platform that's written on modern code, it's not very hard for you to put together a supply chain integration model. And I, I think as we're starting to show CTOs that architecture, they're like, where has this been? We've been waiting for this. Um, and then I think the third thing is when you show them the total cost of ownership of what it means to have a native POS, a native CRM, a native fulfillment engine pre-built integrations with all of your third-party service providers, real-time analytics and pipeline management. When they see that and they say, I mean, I can get rid of all this other stuff and I can shed that and I can just pay one price for this thing. It's intriguing to people. Yeah. I mean, I think that the narrative of, you know, talking about the legacy platforms has been a, has been a popular one, but like, I think we can agree. There's some very smart and experienced people behind this, this merger that's in the works right now. And, and I have to imagine it comes on the heels of some large clients that are looking for a more integrated origination and servicing ecosystem, which, which is part of what it sounds like the consortium will bring forward too. what, what part of that, you know, theory on like the, the servicing and LOS coming together into one, um, under the, the ice business or, or in part of another business, um, am I, am I missing in kind of the view of the benefit of end to end? I mean, so let, let me answer your question this way. Let me start with your presumption that those two things were put together to put them on into a common, on a common data model and have a common one platform offering. But I will tell you this, as a tech guy that's been underneath both hoods, they'll have to write new code because those two don't speak to each other. So unless the plan is to write a completely new platform, that's not happening anytime soon. That's what you think would be the, the case, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. I also haven't talked to any users, mega users of either platform that have actually asked for 
have created an incentive for that. I, I think it's a, I think there's a market fair play and, and they have their own reasons. What we're talking about with the cloud for mortgage platform more specifically, I don't want to call it the consortium. What I'm talking about more specifically, we're calling this product cloud for mortgage. The idea that you could have one domain model, one in-memory database that collects and aggregates your data from the time you first prospecting a client to the time you originate them the first time, their fulfillment results, all their servicing data records, and then re-origination and retention cross-sell strategies. To have all of that data in a single data instance in memory, it creates tremendous efficiencies. The biggest thing it allows you to do is build new applications. That's, that's what Mac has done with the iOS. The biggest thing Mac has done is create this incredible developer workshop where anybody can build applications now and put them in the app store because there's this common uh, data model to build off of, right? And that's why there's so much creativity. We're not really seeing that in our industry. And so I think for the, for the mega users, Having servicing and origination on one platform, especially as refi comes back, is going to make a ton of sense. I cannot argue for a second with the the appeal of the the cloud for mortgage and the unified data cloud benefits. I think there's a ton of things we can point to in housing where cloud computing is starting to enable the future and a unified cloud would expedite integration and adoption at a speed that that we've never seen before. But one of the issues that we have faced as financial services professionals, not just in mortgage, is is information security. So in a strategy like cloud for mortgage, how do you take into account like cybersecurity risk and where risk sits in kind of the lender vendor ecosystem if there's a shared data asset? Well, it's 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 not shared across uh, customers, right? Okay. So that's not how the cloud works. Uh, it's a common data model. So each user has their own private sort of private public version of the cloud. Um, but it's the same domain model. And the importance of that is that you're able to integrate things because you don't have this uh, semantic issue between the way the data is created, say, by an appraisal vendor who's trying to integrate to Encompass and Mortgage Cadence and Empower. You, you sort of have one, uh, one taxonomy, if you will, which gives incredible free license once that's published for anybody to create a microservice driven solution. So I think, you know, we've seen some FinTech explosion, but if you think about it, we haven't seen enough. So take Doc, A Doc AI as just a classic example. I mean, there's probably 12 primary Doc AI suppliers in the marketplace today. And the biggest issue we have is they're all headless. None of them have been able to create a really good custom UX integrated workflow with any of the platforms. And part of that is, 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 the, is the data incongruence. You know, they're, they're classifying this data, but what am I, what am I doing with it? And how am I translating it? And where does it go? And where does it map to? And they, oh my God, you've got all these business rules feeding off of it in your legacy systems. I don't know how to connect all that. So I think we'd see an explosion of more AI, more cognitive assistance, more fit for purpose solutions. And I think that's, you asked me before about how do we get the price down? How do we get, you know, to, to a more, um, you know, to 20 basis points or 15 basis points, the answer is you've got to exhaust the manual check to checker work that exists across the entities. And the only way to do that is to bring computing into the database. When you do it once, when you validate income once, you never do it again. Where today in my, in my outsourcing business, I don't mind it because they pay us. But depending on what we're doing, I might validate income on a single loan 14 times. 
Yeah, I understand the need for like that final validation before close, but 14 sounds a uh, a, l- a little bit uh, <laughs> unnecessary. So Henry, can you explain uh, Headless? So uh, when we went, we went through a, as a media company, we went through a content management system evaluation five plus years ago, and I had to learn about content or headless CMSs. And that was confusing for me as a, you know, a first time buyer of a, a headless product. So we have an audience of people ranging from origination to, to C-suite. Can you talk about headless and what a um, housing professional should, should think of when they hear about a headless uh, doc AI tool? Well, I, I, th- I, I think in, in the most practical terms, I'll give you an example. So I work very closely with a, uh, a document classification and data extraction tool, uh, and, and it, it's a headless process. So it's purely as a service. And so if I get a blob of documents in, I can post it to their server, and then they will um, explode my blob, classify the documents, tag the documents, put them in the right indexing order, extract the data, move the data into a format that's consumable and readable and then they're done. And so, you know, what I think has to happen in the industry is, yeah, but okay, how does that information find its way into a really well-designed UX UI for the underwriter persona who has to use some component of that data or uh, a microservice that then manipulates that data in order to make some decisions from that data and post exceptions, which then can be called by a user interface, called to action. So it's great that we have these kind of standalone processes, but if they're not integrated and we don't give them a face and a look and a feel, it's difficult to to take advantage of them. And I think that's, that's an example of where I think there are a lot of really interesting chat GPT solutions that are coming up, advanced doc AI classification extraction rule. But if you don't use the service and put it in the hands of folks and weaponize it so they can take a call to action, for example, if I do that doc AI classification, what I want to see on my screen as an underwriter is I've cleared 27 data validation points on the tax return. Here are three I can't. What what would you want to what do you want to do with these? Right. And now I work on those three things. I have a user interface for that. It's part of a it's part of an interactive process and I can do my work and put put the work where it needs to go that we haven't gotten there with some of the technologies. So Henry, while I, while I have you, and we've talked a lot about innovation and technology and building global workforces, I want to take a minute to tap your brain on non-QM. So you mentioned non-QM a few minutes ago, your history as a housing professional includes some time with Sprout, an incredibly fast growing. Um, I think at one point was the largest non-QM lender, um, that the that was a storied story. So give, give us a glimpse into your view at, or your time at Sprout, what you learned there. I'm curious of your experience. I mean, you know, I went there for that exactly. And I, you know, I, I try to be a lifelong learner. So as you kind of do things, you go places where you're going to be challenged to learn. And I had not done a lot in the capital market sector as much as I would like to have done in the capital market sector, RMBS, specifically non-QM, which is why I went there. And the CEO there at the time is... Um, Mike Strauss is an infamous guy for what he created with American Home and uh, what he's able to do. He's well-respected on the street for his kind of acumen about assets and asset valuation and how to create assets. And what we were attempting to do there, and the reason I went, is he wanted to really compete with United Wholesale Mortgage on the technology side 
and you know, his big thing was push button, get mortgage. That was kind of the, that was the, the North star push button, get mortgage. That, that was, um, that was initially rockets tagline though, right? Yeah. The push button, I get think, mortgage. I think it was, I think it was, yeah. I remember when they came out with rocket mortgage, I was in a, a meeting with Bill Emerson and I, they did a big, um, like video release the, when they, the marketing campaign was released and when I was in a room with them when they did it showed this huge NASA rocket with all this fuel being burned and this thing taken off. And afterwards, everybody clapped and was high-fiving them. And we went to the bar and I remember leaning over to him going, I would have called it pocket mortgage. <laughs> it was a screen where you're burning tons of fuel. Liftoff took like 50 seconds. Not not somebody, uh, not what somebody who just spent money on a Super Bowl commercial wants to hear about their tagline. <laughs> The challenge that we had at Sprout and what we were built, what we actually built was the ability for a broker to have an intuitive interview with a client and come up with a game plan for what type of product that client was seemingly looking for and what was going to be a fit. And then to give them a utility or a sandbox to explore various product pricing options, but do so off of sourced and verified data. So you weren't doing this kind of stated, I'm going to select this part of the credit box and hope we can find a way to make the loan work especially on income and assets. And so can we develop technology where the broker could feel 98% confident that we understood income, we understood assets, credit, and we could put them in the right product at the right price. So that was the, the, the challenge we had. And then the second challenge that he had was to eliminate as much manual touch on the, on the product as, as we possibly could. So if we can go get source data, great. But what we were enabled to do it with, with the non-QM product, which was actually easier than the conforming product, was to create an AUS solution that once we had that source, once we had that data payload, we could actually make a lot of credit conditional clearing decisions, almost like what Candor is doing in the market. We, we do that off of a business rule, at a, off of ladder logic a lot easier because we didn't have quite as many if-thens on non-QM. Everybody thinks non-QM is super complicated. It's different, but I actually think it's way less complicated if you understand. And if you have good private market or private capital like access points. If they know what they're buying and what they want, right? And they're clear about that. And uh, so we had a lot of success building it. We built a wholesale broker portal, completely redesigned TPO Connect. Um, so to make it super efficient and easy and intuitive for brokers to submit and then instantly get feedback on submission as to what was good, what was bad, what was missing, what was there, what wasn't there. We developed a bank statement analysis tool for non-QM, which was really cool, um, which would put the, depending on the business type, put them in the right product set based on the income we could calculate off the bank statements and the tax returns. So, um, so I think that was a really, really good experience. And, um, the downside obviously was, you know, the way that Sprout closed so suddenly, it was unfortunate because my team, it was probably the most productive 10 to 12 months in my career from a deliverable standpoint. It was amazing what we were able to do. And I got to give the CEO credit. This is what I mean about going subterranean. So we wanted to build a new product. The guy's super busy, right? He runs capital markets. He runs, he runs all the finance. The guy was extremely a micromanager. Um, Three times a week from 4.30 p.m. till 10.30 p.m. We're in the conference room and he's asking the most fundamental questions. Henry, when you upload an Erla, what happens? Where's the data go? 
How do you do it? What buttons do you push? Where does that information get cached? How does it flow into Encompass? Where does it get stored? Who sees it? I mean, it was unbelievable experience. We went through every, we wrote a 200 page product guide, time and motion, time and motion on how this new product was going to work before we, were, we wrote the first line of code. And I give that guy a lot of credit. I don't know how many CEOs in the mortgage industry or their direct reports could sit in a room and decompose the process at that time and motion study. And that's really what was required because what we did when we did that is we said, okay, so that's current state. What's rocket mortgage future state look like? What, how, do we, how would we make that totally automated? And, what, and then we pulled back from that. We said, okay, well, we can't go there yet. What's the next best step to come up with an MVP? So we created three categories. Here's today. Here's MVP. We went this out in 12 months. And then what's our future state North Star look like? It sounds like an incredible environment for propelling progress very, very quickly. And as you come out of that experience and Sprout is no longer in operations today, what, what, ha- what needs to be done different? What needs to be done different from a, whether it's the, the tech or capital market side, like how do other lenders learn from that Sprout experience? So I was with another aggregator yesterday. I, I, think, I think the key to success is if you really want to take some of the friction out. And I've always wondered why the investors don't build a utility, because at the end of the day, they're the ones accepting the asset, right? So I think this notion of transferable due diligence and delegated due diligence in real time. So if you if you think about non-QM RMBS today, when those assets are delivered typically through a correspondent channel, right? Uh, and when those loans are delivered to the aggregator, what do they do? They're paying six to $800 to have a third-party review firm certify the asset and provide a reliance letter. So if you just think about that for a minute in our industry, a professional organization took responsibility for creating an asset based on investor guidelines that were published and delivered and that they theoretically calibrated their technology for. They closed the loan and approved it against those guidelines. They deliver the data and the documents. And now the entire file is going to be interrogated as if it had never been underwritten. And then that's the source of truth. And so I think where there's an opportunity with technology is to say, when you lock this loan with any investor, I'm going to provide a digital twin of that loan as it matures through your life cycle prior to closing. And I'm going to use an API feed to allow me to use technology to in parallel compliance and credit review all the way up to the close. And then prior to closing, I'm going to certify the asset against the investor purchase rules. And I'm going to tell you before you close the loan, if you've got a defect, it's kind of like an early check on steroids. Don't close this loan with these defects and then do the same at post-closing. And then I think if you could tokenize that data certification and allow that to flow downstream with the asset, I think it would take a lot of friction. Your warehouse lines would turn faster. You know, you, you know the story. No one's really come up with a solution for that. And if you talk to the lenders, they're like, do not inspect my loan prior to closing. I've got to I've got to close this loan on time. I got people that need to get paid. Well, that gets into the question of why are we rushing to close this loan? What the hell have we been doing for 28 days on this side of the equation that we can't even take time to certify this asset? Take four hours because we're so far. But how do we get so far behind? And that gets into this lean Sigma issue. So, 
you know, I don't know if I'm making sense, but you kind of see my my point, right? You're guiding us toward a, a future that requires a lot of innovation. We are not done yet, but it sounds like the right resources and people are starting to to come together to bring this future that's powered by the cloud. Henry, can't thank you enough for, for joining me today. I think we've covered a, a lot of really interesting ground on how mortgage technology has evolved and where lenders focus is today that hopefully brings us to that more efficient future that we all know we need. I appreciate it. Hey, man, I appreciate talking to you today. It's a pleasure to meet you. And watch out for those uh, twisty things that near the window. I, I, I'll watch out. We're, we're, uh, we're downtown Dallas now. For some reason, the tornadoes just swing around us, so we're all good. But if I'm ever <laughs> up in Plano, that, 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 that northern area north of Dallas, I'll, uh, I'll keep an eye out. Henry, thank you. Have a great day. See you, man. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And a special thank you to our listeners that take the time to go to Apple Podcasts and provide a review on the show. I want to share some a quick glimpse into what some of our listeners have shared. James D44 let us know that this is a great series of hugely important information for any real estate professional. DC girl Kayla shared, this is a great housing podcast that provides a great variety of information and insights on all things housing. 10 out of 10 recommend. This type of feedback is so energizing and drives us forward to continue producing great interviews for you. Please take a minute to go to the Apple podcast app and let us know what you think. Have a great day.